Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Peter Kolchinsky. Peter is a scientist and an investor in biotechnology companies. He's written three fascinating pieces for City Journal over the last month on the coronavirus crisis, and we're very pleased he could join us on the podcast to talk about his recent work. He's the author of an important new book called The Great American Drug Deal, which we'll discuss as well. If you haven't seen our coverage of the COVID-19 outbreak already, I encourage you to head over to the City Journal website to check it out. Also, the team is hard at work on the next print issue of the magazine, so stay tuned for updates in the coming weeks on that. Uh, Peter, thanks very much for joining us on 10 Blocks. Thanks very much for having me, Brian. As, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're a scientist and an investor, and you're specifically trained in virology, the study of viruses, which makes you pretty well suited to talk about the present situation. Uh, just for our listeners' sake, could you uh, d- describe a little bit your background, uh, br- you know, just briefly? Sure. Uh, I did uh, HIV research in graduate school, uh, studying how the virus enters into cells. Um, and uh, I did this at Dana-Farber uh, at uh, Harvard University. And uh, after that, I uh, became an investor, uh, which... Uh, still required me to understand uh, a lot of what I learned in graduate school about not just viruses, but the immune system and the inner workings of the cell. Uh, Eventually, I had an opportunity to invest in companies that were developing drugs to treat HIV, later drug companies that uh, tackled hepatitis C, hepatitis B. And so my professional work has uh, still kept me involved in the field of virology. Uh, though I have broadened out to uh, other diseases. When did you uh, first become concerned that the outbreak in China was going to, or at least threatened to, become a a global uh, problem? I would say that I uh, realized it too late, uh, like many people. Um, And I think back, you know, why somebody with my training didn't appreciate this. And, um, you know, probably sometime in uh, February, it uh, you know was something that I was thinking about. We'd heard about it you know before then, but I have to admit, because of uh, how quickly SARS and MERS came and went, uh, there was a general complacency out there, and uh, I suffered from it too. Where I just assumed that somehow people who focus on this stuff would would solve it before it uh, really uh, came to our doorstep, um, but. It really became acute for us, I would say, uh, in March. Um, and uh, in early March, our firm uh, went into uh, you know, a heightened state of awareness. You know, it, initially, it started with hand sanitizer. I think we even started with that in February, uh, avoiding handshakes, uh, being more careful about anybody having any symptoms, not coming into work. Um, and then we just went to work from home, uh, work from home mode uh, about a month ago. And have yeah, been that, that way ever since. Yeah, that that pretty much follows our timeline with uh, the Manhattan Institute and the magazine. Um, in in the very illuminating piece you you wrote for us, ending COVID, you express some confidence that we're going to develop a vaccine for the virus. Why do you think that? And and what do you say to those critics out there or observers who point to the lack of a vaccine for the cold after all of these years? as suggesting we might not get a vaccine anytime soon for COVID-19? 
Yeah, so I, I would say that uh, COVID-19 is very much on the forefront of all of our minds. And, you know, uh, it seems scary, you know, as you watch how it's killing people and sending so many people to the hospital. But the reality is that uh, COVID-19 is not so different from, uh, or I should say SARS-CoV-2 is not so different from other coronaviruses uh, that we uh, have studied and we understand reasonably well. Um, we know that our immune systems can uh, beat this virus. We know that it's possible to develop vaccines against them. Uh, we've never bothered to develop vaccines against the four human coronaviruses that we've long had that caused the you know, typical common cold, um, just because the common cold kind of wasn't worth developing a vaccine for, and it's caused by lots of different viruses. Um, but uh, we do have coronavirus vaccines for animals, you know, for chickens and pigs and cows. So uh, it's doable if you want to make one. And uh, we started off, uh, you know, uh, really working on, and we as an industry started off want, wanting to develop a vaccine for SARS and MERS, but because those got uh, reined in very quickly by um, isolating infected patients, uh, it turned out that there really wasn't a need for a vaccine and uh, those programs were aborted, uh, you know, to the extent that governments funded them, governments cut funding. Now that we have COVID and it's spreading, uh, I think that there's going to be considerable follow through on what we started with SARS and MERS. And uh, from what I can see of all of the efforts going on around the world, and I've been in touch with uh, the teams at uh, many companies that are working on vaccines, uh, this is a tractable problem. Um, there's going to be, you know, uh, a need to do some testing to ensure that the vaccines are safe uh, and uh, that they're effective. But I have no doubt that uh, whatever ends up being released to the broader public, you know, in tens and hundreds of millions of doses, um, will be safe and effective. Now, you you've mentioned, as have other observers, the need for, you know, probably an 18-month timeline, optimistically, for the vaccine to be available. Uh, could you explain a little bit more why, um, given that, you know, we, we do have a lot of science already on this, it might take so long? You know, um, I'm going to revise that a bit uh, and say that I am uh, very confident that we ought to have vaccines coming online, becoming available uh, as early as uh, the fourth quarter of this year. So... Um, right. let's say November of this year, not in high, uh, large amounts, uh, not at large scale, but enough to, uh, potentially start vaccinating our frontline workers, particularly healthcare workers. Uh, and then I think we're going to see vaccines come online, uh, at a much larger scale, uh, in the first quarter of 2021. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't say that with 100% certainty because there are still some risks we need to put behind us. Um, and we're going to be running those experiments as an industry over the coming few months. And if uh, those results show that the first generation of vaccines that we're working on are as safe and effective as they probably can be, then uh, I think I, I would stand by the timelines that I'm suggesting here. And I realize that that's ambitious and aggressive, uh, you know, according to some people. If it turns out that the first generation of vaccines do have some problems that we detect in these, uh, you know, animal experiments and early human studies, 
then I can see how uh, we'll have to work on them some more and run larger, longer studies in humans to make sure that they're safe and effective. And I can see how it might take uh, longer, maybe until 2022, uh, so two years uh, mm -hmm. from now uh, before we get a vaccine. Um, so, uh, you know, 18 months to me doesn't, it is not quite right. It's an average of those two, um, but I'd say it's more likely to be, let's say one year before the masses see a vaccine, but there's a chance that it could be more like two. There are a number of vaccine candidates, right? There, there, I mean, just anecdotally, I've seen four or five mentioned uh, moving into some form of, of animal trial or human trial. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I can certainly speak to the, the different kinds of vaccines that, that we're working on. It, it uh, starts to sound a little bit technical. You know, there's mRNA-based vaccines where you're injecting the instructions for how to make pieces of the virus uh, into, uh, you know, basically in the skin and the cells take it up and they start making, uh, you know, bits of the virus. And the vaccine, it's, it's pretty much a, a picture of what the bad guy looks like. It's a picture of uh, SARS-CoV-2 that our immune cells, which you can think of them as like a police, you know, they look at that picture and they say, all right, we will be on the lookout for anything that looks like this. Um, and so uh, you can send the instructions for printing out that picture to the cells so that they print it out and then look at it uh, themselves. You can um, also just inject the photographs themselves. So in this case, the proteins uh, that are on the virus, you can inject those in and uh, just spare uh, the cells from having to uh, produce it. Um, but, you know, that comes with um, other things that you're giving up. Um, you can make uh, a weakened version of SARS-CoV-2. So it's called an attenuated virus. And uh, that's actually what our first smallpox vaccine uh, was that BARDA approved. It was uh, a, a sort of weakened version of a type of smallpox virus uh, or pox-related virus called vaccinia. And, uh, you know, the, that uh, kind of virus probably is the most natural way to train your immune system, you know, to recognize SARS-CoV-2. I'd say that's probably one of the harder, uh, you know, types of uh, vaccine technologies. Um, so I, I don't think that 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 one would be uh, coming online quite as quickly as the the others. Um, mm -hmm. There's viral vectors uh, that uh, use the machinery of other viruses like adenovirus, which we get routinely, uh, you know, adenoviral infections. They basically cause, uh, they also cause the common cold. And you can reprogram an adenovirus uh, to inject the instructions for printing out a picture of SARS-CoV-2 into your cells. And that's uh, like what J&J is working on. Um, and uh, one of the things that I would probably focus on most in trying to figure out which vaccine um, the public, the, you know, the masses should be rooting for is the scale of production. Um, so the mRNA vaccines right now, they're harder to manufacture. We haven't yet built up, built up the manufacturing scale to be able to crank out hundreds of millions of doses quickly uh, that the U.S. and then the broader world will need. Um, the current scale of manufacturing for those would be enough for healthcare workers and other frontline workers. It's a good start. But the adenoviral uh, vac vector vaccines, for example, or the nanoparticles that other companies are working with, those can be scaled 
much more quickly uh, to the point where you could generate, uh, you know, a billion uh, doses uh, over the course of 2021 and hundreds of millions of doses, uh, you know, by the beginning of 2021. So that's the, the kind of vaccine that would make a difference for uh, the broader population. That's very, very illuminating. Thank you. The, the um, recent piece you did for us is a follow-up to the ending COVID argument where you address the question of uh, the mutations of the virus and how that, in this case, is probably not so worrisome. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So um, there's been some concern that because the flu virus, uh, which we all know we live with, it comes around uh, every year, it mutates pretty quickly. And we have to constantly keep racing to keep up with what does the flu virus look like this year? And in reality, there's multiple strains of flu that are circulating around uh, the world each year. And uh, we get a look at what the virus looks like in Asia about six months before it lands on our shores here in the US. And so the uh, companies that make flu vaccines will take some of those strains and create vaccines out of them, right? So you're taking a snapshot of what the you know bad guys look like on the other side of the world, and you're training your police. And what you're hoping is that the bad guys don't change their faces uh, by the time they actually arrive. And the trouble is, flu sometimes does. And so when our uh, you know, vaccines or photos turn out to be out of date, then our immune systems have been trained to look for the wrong thing. And that's when, you know, flu, uh, you know, runs amok and we have a particularly bad flu season. People, you know, uh, get more serious infections. Now, occasionally flu will mutate so radically, so quickly uh, that uh, it's completely unrecognizable to our immune system. And that's when it can cause a pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, that happens every once in a rare while. Uh, it's certainly what happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And it's what we worry about uh, when you hear people talk about, you know, avian flu or pandemic flus. Well, you know, coronaviruses are nothing like that. Uh, they don't swap out, you know, uh, their um, faces uh, quickly the way that flu can. They don't mutate as quickly as flu can. In fact, coronaviruses have proofreading machinery to make sure that every time they make a copy of their uh, genomic uh, code, that if there are mistakes there, the coronavirus tries to fix them. Now, it doesn't get it right uh, every time. And, and so you do get, you know, accumulation of genetic mutations, but at a much slower pace uh, than you would with flu. And so, uh, you know, you may look at everything that's on the internet about uh, coronaviruses, about SARS-CoV-2, and see talk of all the strains that are out there. Sometimes a patient will have two strains in them. The virus will appear to have mutated right inside that, that person. And so you think, how can you say that it doesn't mutate? It seems to be mutating like crazy. And here I would uh, basically say that um, if flu mutates as quickly as a vine grows, right? It, uh, you look at a vine and, you know, if you look at it in the morning and you look at it in the evening, you can see how it's grown, it's changed. You know, over the course of a few days, it can grow wildly. It looks very different. By comparison, SARS-CoV-2 and coronaviruses in general, they're like cactuses. They barely change from day to day, from week to week, you know. But when you look with a microscope at a cactus, you will find changes on a daily basis, if you look that hard. And that is what uh, people have been doing with uh, the 
uh, SARS-CoV-2 viruses that they um, take out and they sample from various patients around the world. They look uh, in incredible detail at the genetic code. And every time they see a little difference, even if that difference does not actually change the virus in any meaningful way, they call it a new strain. And it kind of makes the word strain lose all meaning, right? And so it's really important that the public, to the extent that it worries about strains, focus on the accumulation of genetic changes that matter. And in particular to vaccines, the genetic changes that matter are the ones in that uh, show up as changes to the virus's spike protein. That's the protein that the uh, immune system goes after to try to uh, sort of block it from binding to the proteins on our cells uh, that allow the virus to get in. So it's basically the virus's hand that reaches out to turn the doorknob on our cells to be able to enter our cells. And in this case, the doorknob is called ACE2. So if our immune system can recognize the virus's hand, the spike protein, it can uh, glom it up and keep it from being able to turn those doorknobs on our cells and get into the cells. And the uh, SARS-CoV-2 hand, that spike protein, is not currently changing in any appreciable way. So uh, as long as that remains the case, then whatever vaccines we create to combat SARS-CoV-2 are going to continue to be representative of what the vaccine of what the virus looks like year after year after year. And so our immune systems may forget, you know, uh, immunity can wane. Uh, and so you may have to give a booster shot, but it's going to be a booster shot, most likely, of the same vaccine year after year after year. And if uh, SARS-CoV-2 does end up eventually accumulating enough changes to change how it looks and evade our immune systems, we're going to have way more than six months notice on that. And we'll be able to adapt our vaccines uh, and add you know, additional coverage for those strains into our vaccines. So flu has prepared us so well, I think, uh, to track this kind of thing that uh, we will uh, be able to manage uh, SARS-CoV-2 for the long run. Let's turn, uh, Peter, to your new book, The Great American Drug Deal. Uh, its subtitle gets at the book's scope. The subtitle is A New Prescription for Innovative and Affordable Medicines. A lot of policy thinkers in this area would say it's either one or the other, uh, that you can't have both innovation and affordability. Uh, could you describe the main thrust of your book's argument and tell us what you mean by a biotech social contract? Yeah. So um, over the last several years, uh, the uh, industry, the drug development industry has received a lot of attention for uh, uh, very high priced drugs. And the public has perceived that uh, it is because those drugs have a high price tag uh, on a per patient basis that they are unaffordable to patients. And uh, you know, the outcry from patients uh, that they can't afford the medicines they need, you know, the, uh, people with diabetes saying, I have to ration my insulin, I can't afford my insulin, um, has been uh, interpreted by the public to mean that drug companies are overcharging for their medicines. And uh, the industry, uh, its response, uh, unfortunately, what I heard was, well, drug development's very expensive. You know, and it struck me that there was a disconnect there 
that patients are saying, I can't afford my medicines and drug companies are saying, well, you know, it's really expensive to develop new medicines. So I need to charge a lot. But missing from that was a very important statement. It's, it's terrible that you can't afford your medicines. That's what your insurance is supposed to uh, do. It's supposed to make healthcare affordable for you. And, you know, we must do everything possible to reform insurance so that it uh, functions as proper insurance with low or ideally no out-of-pocket costs. If your doctor says you need insulin, then your insurance plan should make that insulin affordable to you. And if you don't have insurance, then it's impossible to imagine how anything in healthcare is affordable. So it's essential that we uh, achieve universal insurance for everybody. It's not the same as a single payer system. It's not the same as Medicare for all. Maybe it's not that far off for Medicare for those that don't have anything. Um, and Medicare itself needs to be reformed. It can have high out-of-pocket costs for some people. So, you know, even that needs to be reformed. But Medicare for those that have nothing is better than nothing. Now, you know, uh, at that point, once all patients can afford the medicines that they need, We've solved the affordability of medicines. Uh, and the next question is, yes, but are drug companies still overcharging society? You know, uh, could it be that um, America at that point is being taken for a ride? And there, uh, the answer that the industry was giving before is not that far off. Uh, indeed, it is expensive to develop new drugs. You have to charge a lot for them when you are successful in order to make it worthwhile to uh, risk considerable amounts of time and money trying to develop those new drugs. But you know, the, the industry also wasn't giving the absolute key answer to the question of, is America getting value? And that answer was absolutely, because drugs are the only aspect of all of healthcare that actually goes generic. So drugs go generic. The prices we pay for branded drugs are temporary. You know, America used to pay a lot of money for statins. Now they're incredibly inexpensive and taken for granted. And it's like you've paid the mortgage off on your home and now you get to live in it inexpensively for the rest of all time, as opposed to paying rent. By comparison, hospitals, you know, seeing your doctor, all the services, you know, which make up the bulk of healthcare spending, like 90% of healthcare spending, that's rent. And if we don't invent new drugs to keep people healthier, to keep them out of the hospital, to prevent, for example, in my book, I talk about how many hip replacement surgeries are done every year. If we don't create drugs that strengthen bones, that prevent osteoarthritis, you know, we will continue to be paying billions, tens of billions of dollars every year for hip replacement surgeries. And healthcare costs, you know, services costs are rising. That's rising faster than inflation. But if we do create a drug that strengthens bones or prevents osteoarthritis, and we're able to cut hip replacement surgeries in half, then that drug is going to be expensive, no doubt about it, for the first 10 to 15 years, like uh, most drugs are, while their patents last. And then after that, it'll go generic, and uh, it will still leave the rate of hip replacement surgeries cut in half. It will start to generate savings for the rest of all time versus not having invented the drug, which is exactly what you'd expect if you're living in an apartment that you have to rent and you say, you know what, I'm going to invest in my own uh, apartment. I'm going to buy one. And you pay the mortgage on that. It's higher than your rent, but it's temporary. And when you've paid it off, you now get to live rent-free. 
So investing in drugs that will go generic without undue delay is how we spare ourselves much greater healthcare services uh, expenses uh, over time. Now, some drugs don't go generic. That's the key problem. When you think about uh, how great drugs are because they go generic, you realize some don't. And in some cases, when they do go generic, they don't stay inexpensive. That was the big problem when uh, Turing Pharmaceuticals price jacked an old drug, Daraprim, uh, you know, by over 5,000%. And Hillary Clinton tweeted about it and said, you know, Turing's terrible. And uh, the public really, you know, had an anaphylactic reaction against that. And that's when, you know, I think that uh, a lot of this talk about drug pricing and lack of affordability took off. This was middle of 15. Well, there are things we can do to make sure that all drugs go generic on time and stay inexpensive uh, forever. Uh, it, at the time that I was writing my articles and eventually the book, these things weren't being discussed. Uh, and what I proposed was a reform that I call contractual genericization. You basically say, look, uh, when you uh, launch a new drug, uh, then tell us how long your patents are going to last. And let's agree that uh, on the date when your patents will expire, if no other generics have already launched uh, and competed down the price of your drug through you know, the normal genericization process, then you will drop the price of your drug down to, let's say, just two times the cost of production, as if it had gone generic. And that way, America is going to get you know, good value you know, uh, no matter what. And so I'm proposing uh, what is essentially a price control, but after your initial patents have expired. Uh, and if along the way you've improved your drug in some way, you know, maybe you tack on six months you know, to your uh, period of exclusivity and you delay your contractual genericization date by six months, and that, that will allow you to harvest some more um, reward for your extra work. When you look at a bill like HR3 uh, that uh, came out of the House, uh, it basically proposed price controls right at the outset. Any new drug that gets launched immediately, it's subject to price controls, as well as uh, on the other side of the, the ledger, lowering out-of-pocket costs for patients with Medicare. So it kind of captured the two sides of the biotech social contract, but with the wrong kind of price control. Um, what I'm proposing is simply, yes, let's lower the out-of-pocket costs. That's essential. In fact, I'd like to see that extended to all insurance plans, not just Medicare. But in terms of a price control, shift it to when the patents initially expire. Those initial uh, uh, patents, once they expire, yes, let's impose a price control to make sure that society gets value from its finite series of uh, mortgage payments. And the closest thing out there now uh, to a bill that's proposing exactly what I'm calling for is the McSally bill uh, in the Senate. It's not getting a lot of attention, but uh, I'd encourage people to take a look at that. What kind of reception are you getting, Peter, for your argument from uh, the drug companies? So uh, I am getting a lot of interest, actually, from uh, small companies. Not surprisingly, they're the ones that are, are in favor of innovation, and they, they are not in the business of harvesting rents from drugs that you know, are long overdue, uh, you know, and um, they're not playing patent games. But the larger companies that have been uh, accused of playing these kinds of patent games and turning mortgage streams into extended rent streams, they've also reached out. And uh, they reached out because 
at the end of the day, every one of these large companies, uh, even if it's enjoying um, the benefits of some of this patent gaming, they're also launching new drugs. And so they're kind of conflicted. It's nice to have those you know, uh, extended revenue streams from patent gaming, but they can also see that if they don't uh, do right by society, if they don't you know, convey that ultimately they're willing to let their drugs go generic, uh, it's going to be harder and harder for them to launch their new drugs and get a reward for that progress. And so these larger companies, I think they're of two minds. Um, they want to ultimately align themselves with the biotech social contract, um, and they're trying to figure out how to do it so that uh, society welcomes their continued innovations. And they're trying to figure out, you know, just how are they going to um, absorb, you know, the loss of revenues from uh, reforms like what I'm suggesting. And, you know, if it's not the reforms I'm suggesting, it'll be other reforms. The, you know, Grassley-Wyden bill suggests, uh, you know, capping price increases uh, on, on drugs, which, you know, on the surface sounds great. Um, but actually, it can be a real problem for a new drug uh, when you don't quite know how large the market is that you're trying to address. You don't know how many patients there are. Are there 100,000 patients that will need the drug? Are there 20,000 patients that will need the drug? And when you price the drug, if you're not allowed to adjust the price later, once you find out exactly how many patients are going to be benefiting uh, from the drug and taking it, then you're just going to have to err on the side of caution. And price that drug higher, right? And if you think that that's going to cause a backlash, then you might say, you know, I'm so uncertain about this market size, maybe I shouldn't even bother developing the drug at all. And that would be a shame. So, you know, capping price increases, uh, you know, it has its own problems. I, I, and I've spoken to folks that are involved with that bill and suggested maybe they delay, uh, you know, triggering that cap for a few years so that a new drug can launch, equilibrate, you know, the price to the real market size that's there, that's there. And then let's say four years after launch, you can impose a, a cap on price increases. That would be fine. I don't see that as discouraging innovation. Um, or you're going to get bills like HR3 that call for just outright price controls that are uh, so incredibly toxic that I think that they would shut down most of innovation, uh, you know, pretty quickly. So the industry can see it's going to face some kind of reforms. And the ones that I'm proposing are the ones that are most pro-innovation because they ultimately uh, focus the industry on harvesting mortgage payments uh, and guaranteeing society that the high prices it pays for drugs are finite and that it will come to own all of these uh, new drugs as kind of public domain resources, generics for the rest of all time. Right, that should be our industry's give to guarantee that all our drugs will go generic without undue delay, in exchange for winning affordability for patients, which is what this is all about. Thank you, Peter. Don't forget to check out Peter Kolchinsky's recent writings for City Journal on the coronavirus crisis, and his new book, which he's been discussing, the Great American Drug Deal. His latest piece uh, for the magazine is called Ending COVID. You can find it on our website in the description, uh, as, as you can uh, a link with the book. Uh, Peter can be found on Twitter, at Peter Kolchinsky. He His tweet threads have become 
must read uh, during this crisis. You can follow City Journal on Twitter as well, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And remember, you can email us at podcast at city-journal.org if you have any questions or suggestions. And always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Peter, very much for joining us. Thanks for joining us Thank for you. the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.